Welcome back, and thanks for joining me for another episode of Carla Reads the Classics. As always, if you have questions, if you'd like to make a comment or have a suggestion, please write to me at carlareadstheclassics at gmail.com. Anchor users, please feel free to leave a voice message. And now, let's continue with Theodore Pratt's The Money, Segment 7. George shut the box quickly with a snap, as though an indecent sight had been revealed, one that the world should not be allowed to see. The others cried out in protest. He opened it again. They looked at the money in silence for a long moment. Gracie exclaimed, Gee, golly! Henny let out a great breath as though he had been holding it until he could no longer stand the strain. Paul sighed. Joey shrieked, I found it! It was me found it! George whistled in a way that sounded like a precocious wolf whistle at a girl. They stared at each other. They couldn't altogether accept it yet. Joey reached out a small hand toward the box, toward the money. George slapped it away and closed the box again. They let it stay there on the ground while they got to their feet. Joey began to jump again, and his movements inspired the others to follow suit. They danced, crying out, laughing, screaming hysterically. They pranced and gyrated about the box, unmindful of the piles of dirt and holes, executing a jerky, awkward, frenzied ritual. Someone cried, We're rich! Instantly, they all took up the words, yelling, We're rich! We're rich! They kept shrieking this chant as they danced. It went on until George stopped and hollered, Be quiet! They stopped and fell silent. They all breathed heavily. Somebody will hear us, George cautioned. Maybe they already have. They listened, but no evidence came that anyone else was around or had heard their victory celebration. George brought them all the way back to earth. Now, before we do anything else, we can't let anybody see the digging here. We got to cover it up. We got to put it back the way it was. Immediately, they all saw the wisdom of that. George ordered Joey, You shovel back the coal and make it look like no one touched it. The others filled in the holes. We'd better get rid of the cloth. He flung into one of the holes the cloth that had been wrapped around the box. He stooped, picked up the box, while all the others watched carefully... He took it over to one of the shelves, set against the wall, and rested it there, in plain sight of all. They kept glancing at it as they worked. They worked as hard as ever to cover up their traces as that they had to make their find. They buried the large stone they had encountered. Gracie gave an occasional giggle, and the others made sharp, little, uncontrolled sounds of achievement and expectation— while they filled and then tamped the earth flat again, walking on it, shuffling it, and stamping. Their exhaustion had completely disappeared. When they were through, George examined the result and found it acceptable. I'll put the shovel right back where we found it. He placed it carefully in the same spot from which he had taken it, propped against the furnace. I remember a TV show once where they didn't put one thing back and they got found out. He gave a last look around. That ought to do it. Watched by the others, George went to the metal box and took it from the shelf. Henny picked up their shovel and carried it. They crawled out through the window and there, in the sunlight, they could see how filthy they were. Where they were not covered with dirt, they were covered with coal dust and generally it was both. 
They started to move off, but Gracie cautioned, If we go home this way, they'll know we've been doing something. We've got to find some way to wash. George accepted the suggestion and looked about. Maybe there's a water spigot somewhere around. They searched behind the overgrown bushes at the side of the house and found what they wanted. George handed the box to Henny to hold while he turned on the spigot, discovered that the water ran, and washed, including his face. The others followed suit. There wasn't any way to dry except for the handkerchiefs Gracie and Paul had, but they dried pretty well anyway, and afterward they looked presentable. With George carrying the treasure again, they trooped back to the clubhouse, where the door was shut and a candle lighted. The council of war they had to hold, and a further look at the money, called for that. Immediately it became stifling in the clubhouse, but they barely noticed this. Let's see it, Joey importuned. First, said George on his president's chair. What time is it? Paul reported. A few minutes before twelve. Then there isn't time to look at it now, George decided. What are we going to do? Gracie demanded. If we open it up now and look at it and count it, George pointed out, we'll all be late for lunch and that'll mean questions. We can't risk that. Henny agreed. He indicated the box still in George's hands, especially now. George wanted to know, is anybody's mother away for lunch today? No one could say yes to this. That means, George said, nobody can stay here and protect it while we're at home. Maybe that wouldn't be so good anyway, said Paul. Why not? asked Joey. I mean, only one staying with it. When they understood the implications of this, they glanced uneasily at each other. And nobody can take it home with them said George. The same objection applied to this idea, which now made them look at each other suspiciously. What are we going to do? Gracie repeated. George thought, there's only one thing to do. We'll have to leave it here, unguarded, until we get back. Somebody will steal it, warned Joey. Maybe they won't, said Henny. They froze as they came as there came a faint, distant call of a woman's voice from the direction of Cornwall Road. "'That's your mother now, Joey,' George said. "'We gotta decide fast. There isn't any time to bury the box. I say we leave it under one of our chairs in the clubhouse, cover it up, and we all go home to lunch and get back afterwards as fast as we can.' "'One thing we'd better do,' Paul said. They stared at him. "'We won't all get back at the same time.' So nobody goes in the clubhouse until we're all here. George looked at him. Everybody promise? They promised, including George. He got up, lifted his president's chair, put the metal box on the ground and covered it with the wooden box. Someone opened the door. The candle was blown out and they closed the door carefully, being sure it was shut and the latch caught. They were glad their sign said, keep out. They ran home. Henny was the first to get back to the clubhouse. He arrived at exactly 12.15. The consumption, or rather the gulping, of his lunch was faster than that of the others because it had been ready and laid out for him when he arrived. Then, too, he lived on Oxford Road, just up the street from the clubhouse and nearest to it, so that gave him an advantage. Dutifully and according to honor, he waited outside. Gracie was next at about 12.20, with George right on her heels. 
Joey was the fourth, running up to ask, "'Nobody's been inside!' They assured him that this was the case. They had to wait until nearly 12.30 for Paul, and then he was not running like the others had done, but simply walked. The other four, waiting before the door, greeted him with impatience, and immediately they all went inside. The candle was lighted, and the door cracked. George turned over his chair. To their relief, the metal box was still there. George did not sit on his president's chair, but turned it up so that so that it provided a table for their find. On this he placed it. They kneeled again as though praying in adoration. While all watched, the metal box was opened once more. The money was intact. They gazed upon the packets of bills and made much the same kinds of sounds they had when they first viewed them. Maybe it's a million, Penny breathed. Sure it is, piped Joey. Gracie looked a little scared. Paul smiled slightly. Henny gave an uncertain glance at the others. George stared at the money steadfastly. Joey grinned. Paul suggested, we'd better count it. To do this, they had to make a better arrangement than using the one box George had placed. They used all their chairs, turned up with their solid bottoms, and pushed together to form a table, somewhat uneven because they weren't all the same size, but serviceable for their purpose. Gracie had taken out Mr. Wesley's guest register and placed it aside on the ground. It seemed singularly appropriate that it should be present. She had also taken out her notebook with the official club pencil and had it ready to keep the account. There was some confusion as to whether the secretary or the treasurer should keep this. Paul argued that the treasurer should keep track of the money, but the others were prone to think that anything written down was the job of the secretary, so Gracie should do this. Paul then proposed, I think I should be the one to count it. George stepped on this. I'm the president, I'll count it. But counting money is the treasurer's job. I'll count it, George stated flatly. I don't see why you... Gracie stepped in, placating the argument before he could reach greater dimensions, cause trouble, and postpone counting the money any longer. Oh, let him, she advised Paul. If he wants to, it doesn't matter so much. Paul subsided, though he wasn't happy about his position being usurped on such a wide scale and so bluntly. They stayed on their knees as though worshipping around the improvised table, and George reached out and picked up and picked up the packet whose rubber band had been broken. The top bill could be seen to be an old $50 bill. While they watched, hardly breathing, he fanned out the packet. There were whistles and other noises, all prayerful, when they saw that every bill in this packet was of the same denomination, and all were old. There were exactly 100 of them, as George carefully counted them slowly so that the others could see and keep track, too. That's $500, said Henny. It's more than that, Gracie said. It's got to be, Paul agreed. Only 10 of them would make 500. It's 50,000, said Joey. Rather hoarsely, George instructed Gracie, Gracie, figure it on paper. Gracie figured it on the back of the last page of her notebook so as not to spoil the first part for their records. She gasped, checked again, murmuring the figures as she multiplied them a second time and announced in a small voice, It's five thousand. They gazed with even more respect at the rest of the packets in the metal box. The first 
counted packet was laid aside but placed in plain view on their table so that it could not be touched by anyone without the others seeing. George took up the second packet, this one secured by a rubber band. It also consisted entirely of $50 bills, but it was thicker than the other and, when counted, found to amount to exactly twice the first, or $10,000. A third and fourth packet proved to be the same as the second, and as yet they had made small inroads on the filled space of the metal box. Each time, except for the first, George put the rubber band back around the packet after it was counted. $35,000 so far, Gracie reported. They stared wide-eyed at the counted money, and then, when they looked at the uncounted, their eyes became even more round. End of Segment 7